If you're anything like me, you sometimes have trouble organizing and keeping track of all of the things you're reading. I've got stacks of magazines and stacks of books and ebooks and audiobooks. It's a little bit of a mess. Scribd is the ultimate reading subscription service, letting you explore all your interests in any format you choose ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, everything for only $9.99 a month. You get an entire library for less than the cost of a single book. There are no complicated credits or additional purchases required, and they also will combine the latest technology with the best human minds to recommend content that you'll love. Right now, we're offering listeners of this program a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash thresholds for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com scribd.com slash thresholds to get 60 days of Scribd for free. You can even check out my book, Thin Places, there in ebook form. This episode is brought to you by Volvo Cars. The future is electric. So by 2030, all new Volvo cars will be fully electric. Drive a Volvo that helps protect your family and the planet we all share. Learn more at volvocars.com slash US. For the first like 20 years or so of my life, I felt very isolated. I felt like an alien sort of um, beamed onto Earth. And when I found out that I was connected to these people, um, I, I realized that actually I'm, I've always been a very lucky person. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. The last year has been rough for everybody. People have been dealing with isolation, anxiety, grief, so much more. And even though our circumstances are beginning to shift a little bit, there's still a lot to process. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code THRESHOLDS to get $100 off your first month and to show your support for the show. That's THRESHOLDS and Talkspace.com. The code THRESHOLDS to get $100 off your first month to match with a licensed therapist today and set and achieve your goals. Patrick Cottrell is the author of Sorry to Disrupt the Peace, a novel about a woman named Helen who was adopted from Korea and who returns home to her adopted parents' house in the Midwest after the suicide of her younger brother. It's a book Cottrell has called an anti-memoir about alienation, home, and the failure of communication and understanding between people connected through family ties. It won the 2018 Whiting Award. I got to talk to Patrick about his own history as an adoptee from Korea and the discovery he made in his 20s that the story he'd been told about his adoption was a fiction. 
A quick content warning, this conversation includes a brief mention of suicide. Thanks. Being adopted and um, navigating the world in this way, it feels as if, um, personally, I, I feel as if I'm wearing like some kind of costume a lot of the time, just starting with my name and um, how my name doesn't really reflect, you know, where I'm from or, you know, um, the fact that I was born in Korea. And I think that um, it's just something that I've written about and thought about a lot of most of my life. And it's being a Korean adoptee means straddling these two identities as a Korean and as an adoptee. And, you know, um, it's just something that I've thought about, you know, throughout most of my life. So I guess that was the first thing that came into mind. And then from there, I thought about how for most of my life, I had assumed like most Korean adoptees that, you know, my biological mother uh, had me and gave me up because she was unable to take care of me. And the story I was told was that I, that she was a single parent and unable to take care of me. Um, And what happened was when I was in my early to mid-20s, I initiated a search uh, for my biological mother, and that involved um, reaching out to the adoption agency that my parents used, and then that agency reached out to the orphanage uh, where I was for the first six months of my life. And um, so anyway, I initiated that process, and I didn't expect to hear anything of it because there's a lot of stigma and shame around um, adoption in Korea, as far as I know, and also just having children outside of a marriage. Um, so anyway, I initiated that search, and uh, one day I received um, a phone call from uh, a woman with a very thick Korean accent. It was hard to understand what she was saying. She was speaking English, but it was difficult to understand what she was saying. But she told me that my father wanted to talk to me and he wanted to write me a letter. And so, I mean, that was just uh, immediately all of these um, weird feelings of just... uh, gratitude but like suspicion like who is this person is he my father you know like just so many questions came into my head and um yeah from there uh, he did write me a letter and it was translated and it was a very simple letter it was a few sentences about you know that he hoped i was doing well and um yeah, so that that was a really big moment for me um, in my 20s. And from there, like a year later, it, it felt like this other door opened when one day I was at work um, in the West Village. I was a barista and out of the blue, an email appeared in my inbox and it was from a Korean name, like the name that showed up, it was in Hangul. 
And uh, the email was from my sister, uh, a biological sister of mine. And she uh, was writing, she wrote her email in English because she happens to be an English teacher. And from there, we started talking and emailing. And as it turns out, I have three older sisters and uh, my parents were divorced. They got a divorce after being married for uh, 10 years. And so I was the last one that they had and um, they couldn't afford to take care of me. And um, so, yeah, I was given up for adoption. But the story of the single mother um, unable to take care of me, I found out that that was just, that just wasn't the case at all. And actually had this family that with these older sisters that all to varying degrees uh, resemble me. Um, Yeah, I would say that was a strange portal to walk through and to discover. I mean, it just really altered a lot of things that I told about myself, you know. Do you remember when you understood that you were adopted or what you thought that meant at the beginning? Um, yeah, I, I, I did because, well, it, you know, my parents were very, uh, well-meaning, um, suburban Catholic people. And when I was very little, I liked reading. So they bought books about adoption (laughs) for me to read about. And there's a story that my mom likes to tell about me. And, and it was that I didn't want to read the books about adoption because I was afraid that there was that there would be bad things in those books. So I, I think that I think something I just knew even when I was little that I it felt like there was something um kind of scary or intimidating about that word. I didn't even want to know about it when I was little. I understood that it was something that I was, but I didn't want to know about it because I was afraid of what it meant. And Mm. yeah. Did that change as you got to be a slightly older kid? I mean, clearly it changed by the time you were in your twenties. What was that? What was that change like? Yeah, it was over time. It was over a long period of time uh, because when I was younger, we would always live in these suburban neighborhoods in Pittsburgh and Chicago and these like very Midwestern, uh, upper middle class uh, neighborhoods that were 99% white. And I had two younger brothers and, uh, you know, we just wanted to survive and blend in and not draw attention to ourselves, or at least that was how I felt. Um, so it was definitely something that developed over time. And one thing that helped was uh, going to college and just meeting other people who weren't white. <laughs> so uh, that was that was when that changed. Um, but you know, growing up, I I was um, it was something that I thought about a lot, but I didn't really have anyone. Um, to talk to about it. So it was something that I thought about, but I I never considered, I didn't um, talk about it with people or, uh, yeah, I just, it was something that I 
kind of kept to myself, like my thoughts about it. So yeah, it was something that changed when I went to college. Did you ever talk to your brothers about it since they were also adopted? Um, I mean, growing up, no, it was something that we, we were all, I mean, I have a brother who is close to me in age. He's a couple years younger and we just, we never got along. We were, uh, very competitive with one another and we we just had very different personalities and so that was something we just weren't close so uh we did not talk about that with each other um but my youngest brother as he got older um well I should say like we he was uh six years younger than me so I always just thought of him as you know just like my little brother and anyway as he got older our relationship became closer and it was something that we talked about and it was something that he also uh he also wanted to search for his biological mother and he did start the process although he never um found out much about that and um so yeah that was something that we connected over um but it, it's it's a very it's a sad and difficult thing because um, I feel like I've been so lucky in a way because I was able to get an answer and more than an answer I've I've had so many answers about um, where I'm from and what my biological family is like but uh, my youngest brother you know he didn't have any answers and I think that's something that deeply affected him. So when, how did you come to realize that you wanted to start that search process? Hmm. I think it was just gradually over time. And it also coincided with having a roommate in college who was also a Korean adoptee. And she would openly speak about um, starting her process and I, she just had so much confidence about it, and um, I, I guess perhaps some of her confidence, it rubbed off on me, and I became really interested as well. Um, so yeah, I think it, it started there with the roommate, who was also a Korean adoptee. So. I guess I'm curious, when you were in the search process and still imagining Mm-hmm. You know, you hadn't you hadn't made contact with anybody yet, but you mm-hmm. were hoping to. Mm-hmm. Did you know what questions you wanted answers to? Um, you know, I think I didn't want questions answered from my biological mother. I think I just really wanted to just even know who she was, I guess. I just wanted to see her, like, just see, I was just really curious about what she looked like. And, you know, um, I think just growing up amongst people that I didn't resemble in any way, it, you know, I just was really curious, like, did we look like each other? You know, just really basic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was just a really basic question like that. And, you know, just like, what is she even like as a person, you know? But I didn't really have, questions about the circumstances of why I was given up. I think at the point where I started really imagining imagining that situation, I already had told myself, I mean, she just had to. 
you know, and that was the narrative that I was brought up with, that I was raised with, that, you know, she just was unable to take care of you and she did the best that she could. So I never questioned that. Um, so it was, it was pretty surprising when I found out that that just wasn't the case, you know? <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine <laughs> yeah. that that would, I mean, I can imagine it would have been so shocking to realize you had more siblings. Yeah, no, it was incredible. I, I was, I was thrilled. I was really excited <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's been a navigation with them, like as a trans man, it's been a navigation because the sister I, I speak with, she is Christian and quite a conservative Christian. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a process to, um, to navigate all that with her. But it's it's been okay. It's actually been surprisingly okay in some ways. So, yeah. You were saying earlier that you felt like after that, so many things. Mm-hmm. Forget what the you used a really beautiful word phrasing, but you said something like so many so many things changed in terms of your understanding of yourself and mm-hmm. and your family. Um, can you tell me more about that? Like what felt different afterwards? Yeah. I mean, I, I had felt um, for the first like 20 years or so of my life, I felt very isolated. I felt like an alien sort of. Um, beamed onto earth. And when I found out that I was connected to these people, um, I, I realized that actually I'm, I've always been a very lucky person. And I think that I, so it, I, it's not that I'm like suddenly, like I was suddenly like a happy person, but I realized that I was a lucky person. And I think that having that luck and knowing, I, I guess the narrative about myself um, shifted in the sense I went from this isolated alien into this like lucky person. <laughs> you know, I just, I just felt really lucky. And, um, you know, I still feel, uh, it's not that I'm not like anxious or depressed about things, but I think my orientation towards life, it, it drastically changed from feeling just completely, I, I think for a long time I had a very negative affect and I, I saw things in a very negative way. And I realized actually this, that story, you know, it's shifted for me. And I, I think when I really think about it and I look at, you know, the experiences that my brothers have had, you know, I actually feel really lucky. And I don't know why. I, I don't know how this happened. Um, yeah, I don't know. But that's what I walked away with. Um, when you say that you feel really lucky, what do you feel 
like your luck is? Is it the luck <laughs> at having found 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 your biological family, or is it like more broad than that in some way? No, I, I mean, yeah, I think it has to do with finding the family, just because so few people have that experience. Um, I mean, there are some who do, um, but I think that I, I think that um, hmm, I'd have to think more about how to answer this. I wonder. I, I think at base, it, it does have to do with the family, with my family, and with the fact that I have these sisters. Um, but I also think there must be something more to it than that. But I, I, I would need to think more about why or how, what my feeling around that is, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's not such a bad thing to have a diffuse sense of being lucky, though. Yeah. I mean, I... I think it's just a core, it's one of those core stories, you know, that uh, you might tell yourself in like therapy or like talk about in therapy, you know, like one of those core origin stories shifted. And I don't know, I mean, I'm sure that happens a lot for people in different ways. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that it's just one of those stories that shifted drastically. And, you know, as a writer, I don't know if I could even write about it because it just, it just seems, it just doesn't even seem, it's not that it's not believable. Of course it's believable, but it just seems too tidy or something like this reversal. It's almost too tidy. I don't, you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings me to a question I wanted to ask you, which is, when in time, in relation, mm. in terms of time, did this happen to the period when you were working on your yeah. first novel? Um, yeah, it happened actually not that long. Um, I, I started writing my book like a year or two after all of this. So yeah, I would say it all kind of, all these things happened in my mid-20s or so, mid to late 20s. Um, mm -hmm. so how, how did, did this, did it change your writing? Do you think, or did it, how did it infuse the book that you then wrote? No, I would say it didn't change my writing because, <laughs> uh, strangely, I think that when I started writing the book, I, I, um, well, I started writing the book because my youngest brother committed suicide. And um, so it the experience with my biological family, I can't say that it didn't affect the book, but I, I don't think there's that much of it in the book at, at all, really. What's in the book is mostly like the 20 years of just feeling like an alien, you know, plus the, um, plus what happened to my brother, you know? So I would say that it, it's hard to compartmentalize all of this, but I, I don't think that, uh, what happened with my family is in the book so much. I think that that's another book that'll just have to be something else. <laughs> <laughs> And it is. It actually is. I, I think that it is. That the experience of feeling like an alien is such a a precise way to capture the way that that protagonist feels in that book to me. 
And I, I was wondering how you arrived at the style or the voice even um, for that character. I think that the voice was immediate and part of it was I... Um, I think part of it stemmed from a feeling of irritation um, at the idea of needing to write about this. I wanted to write about it, but I also felt like I had to write about aspects of my identity and my family and childhood and what happened to my brother. Um, I wanted to, but I also felt like I had to. Uh, so there was this just irritation, I think, with the world. Um, but I also think that some of the more um, emotional or tender or like sensitive aspects of the book, I think a lot of that comes from uh, going to graduate school and working um, with the writer Jesse Ball, who who, um, you know, it's kind of, uh, what is it? It's a cliche to be like this mentor or this person changed my life. But I, I would say, um, a lot of things in my writing shifted after working with him and all for the better. So I, I think that, um, a lot of things were opened up for me in my writing after working with him. So I would say part of it is from frustration with the world and with publishing at the time. And also uh, part of it is from opening up different aspects of my writing through my um, working with Jesse. So it was kind of those, a combination of those things. to me something bold about a book writing a book with a character who goes through a lot but doesn't necessarily change or transform in the way mm. that you might expect a person to after going through all the experiences that that she has mm. and i was wondering if you thought about that if you thought about that while you were working on it whether or not helen needed to change or whether you had any temptation to make her change mm -hmm. um i think that it would have been really hard just because the voice was so uh the voice is so claustrophobic there also there almost isn't room for that kind of change and i think that the other thing that limited that is just that the book takes place over five days you know <laughs> yeah. so i think that a lot of times even though we're undergoing through something that's really challenging over the course of like a week, I don't know that we're even aware that we're changing as it's unfolding, you know? So I think that, I think that that limited, um, you know, any kind of transformation. Although I think at the end, there's some kind of shift, you know, by the end of the book, I think. And I think even the conversation with her father, I think that that was always 
something that for me felt like a moment of something shifting, even if she isn't fully aware of it. I think that that conversation, just even being there and the way it's described, you know, and the act of like listening, um, I, I, for me, that felt like a shift. And that was something that I put in the book because I knew that my dad would read my, I, I knew that my father would read the book and I um, wanted there to be something in there that he would like and that I felt like he would connect with. So that's why that's there. But for me, that felt like a shift. Maybe, you know, it's, um, I think the book is made up of like microclimates almost, not, there isn't mm. a huge shift. There's just like changes, like little changes in the weather, like on, like from, you know, the hour to the next hour. But I wouldn't say, she as a person has like fundamentally shifted by the end. But it could be too soon for that to happen too, because it's only been a few days, you know? Right. So, yeah. I mean, it was hard because I think that people, um, you know, when I had sent it to people to look at it, it, it was definitely no one really knew what to do with it. And I, I think that they wanted some kind of transformation or more of a, um, change. And I, you know, I just felt like that's not really how that's, that wasn't, that just wasn't my vision for it. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I, I admired it. I liked that that was, I mean, cause you're right. There are, and I like the, the, the phrase you're using of like different microclimates. There are mm -hmm. these, it's almost like barometric shifts that mm -hmm. are happening yeah. throughout. And of course there's so much happening, but mm -hmm. I had, I liked that Thank the person <laughs> who ended the book was like fundamentally, you know, as, as, as sounded the same as the person on the first page of the book, you know, um, I thought that was, I thought that was bold and cool. <laughs> Thank so you. I'm glad, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you didn't, um, well, Thomas Bernhard, you know, his narrators don't change, you know, so I yeah. just, I, you know, Beckett, I don't know, they're, I'm not sure, you know, some of the other writers, who else is mentioned on the cover? Jane Bowles, you know, like I don't, you know, their characters, they can't because they're not even, they're not even really characters per se. They're just like figures who are there to animate some kind of thinking, you know, it's really about the thinking, the thought processes and how the character feels about their circumstances. But you know, as characters themselves, I don't even know if Helen is really a character. I, I think that she's just a vessel for thinking, you know, and, and I would say, you know, I mean, I think that I, if I were to, I haven't looked at the book in a long time, but my memory of writing it is there are long passages where not much is really happening. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it surprised me to hear you say that, you know, there are a lot of things happening because my experience of writing, it was like, there are really long stretches where nothing is happening. And, um, and I felt fine with that. I, I didn't mind that at all. It was very pleasant <laughs> <laughs> not to worry about like what needs to happen next. You know, I don't, I think that that's something that, um, it, it feels like, Obviously, like with autofiction, there's it's just, you know, people have moved away from the need for there to be a turn in every scene. You know, mm -hmm. it's just not necessary. So, 
How you brought up including a scene because you knew that your father was going to read the book. Mm-hmm. How how mm-hmm. attentive were you to the fact that your parents or your family might might mm-hmm. read the book and have feelings about it? Yeah, I mean, I um for uh, well, I would say uh, for the majority of the book, I didn't think about that at all because I, I just wasn't even really thinking of it as something that would even be published necessarily. I just, I really didn't think of it that way. But then when I got towards the end, I did start to think like, wow, I've come so far. Like maybe this could be something. And at that point, I did, I did sort of envision. Um, my parents reading it, and especially my dad, because he he was a big reader. He would always read books on his Kindle or whatever. And um, I, you know, I didn't think that my I didn't think that my mom would read it, and I I think she tried to, but it was just too difficult. Which is, I completely respect that, and I I don't want her to read it. <laughs> um, and and we're very close, and she's I'm completely fine with that, and. Um, but for my, for my dad, yeah, it did feel like something important. Did you ever, um, meet members of your biological family after you were in touch with them? I I haven't gone there to meet them yet. And I, I hope to, um, I have talked to my mother on the phone through a translator and it was, it was delightful. It was wonderful. <laughs> She's very funny. She had a really dry sense of humor. Um, at the time, actually, my book had come out in Korean, which again, I you know, I just had, I never would have imagined that. So it was translated into Korean, and it came out there uh, last year. So my biological mom went to the store, or the library, or something, and she. Uh, bought it and read it and she said that she'd read it numerous times and I was like I was like I can't believe it I was like are you sure I was like and I kept saying to her in this phone call I was like through the translator I was like you know this is a novel this is all made up like this isn't real (laughs) you know (laughs) I was like this is not a memoir and you know there's a lot of things in it that I made up and she was like, yeah, I know. It says novel. <laughs> she was like, I know. It's, it says fiction. I, I know. <laughs> she just had this really dry sense of humor, um, which I was just shocked at that. And yeah, she was really fun to talk with and a lovely person. And um, it's it's difficult because we don't speak the same language. So um you know, there's obviously a barrier there, but I do hope to go there. And, you know, I think that what really holds me back is just really how conservative a lot of Korean culture is. And, you know, my sister was afraid to tell them, to tell my parents about um, me being trans. And ultimately, she did say something to them about it. And she was, she reported back to me that she was like, I was so surprised. Like they really, they didn't seem upset and they weren't surprised at all. And it's completely fine. And, um, but I think just as a whole, like the culture, it it does hold me back from going there. I would like to, but I do feel anxious about it. Uh, 
but hopefully one day sooner than later. I, I will go. I think in the next year, I'm hoping to. How do you, do you feel like you're, um, the part of you that was experiencing being a person adopted in mm -hmm. the world, mm -hmm. um, however that felt to you for most of your life, has that continued to change after first making contact with them? I know you said there was a big shift right when it happened, but has it, is it still changing? Hmm. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, I think so. I, I think so because as I get older, um, I think that as I get older, I feel even more, I don't know if secure is the right word, but I feel even more connected to my identity as an adoptee. Whereas even like five years ago, I didn't as much. But now I feel more than ever, it's really important to talk about. And, you know, one thing that I was thinking about, um, I, you know, I started teaching at University of Denver and uh, I decided, I was like, I want to teach a class on Asian American fiction, you know, and I did not have like the typical, you know, experience of my parents being immigrants or that their parents were immigrants, you know, I did not have that experience. But then part of me was like, why can't I teach this? Like as an adoptee, this is part of, you know, the Asian American experience. And I, you know, I decided like, this is something I want to do. I want to try this. And I think that, um, you know, having the perspective of being part of like the diaspora, you know, is something that can just... I, I think that that can um, only serve to like broaden and help nuance the conversation around around Asian American literature, you know. So I think that I think that my identity as an adoptee has become more secure, and I felt more strongly about it than I have, and I think it just continues to develop, you know. I mean, it was just something that I sort of shied away from before, you know, and and I realized I think that writing this book and then, uh, you know, continuing the conversation with my biological family, I think all of it um, has sort of made me realize, like, I am writing for um, other adoptees and other Korean adoptees, that is what I'm writing about. And that is who I'm writing for, whether or not a character is explicitly, you know, a Korean adoptee and like, say a short story or something, that's still who I'm writing for. So yeah, I guess that's something I've become more secure in that idea. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>